everyone and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks John. How are you? I'm good as well. So today we continue our coverage of 90s Asian cinema with the 1997 Japanese film Hana B, aka Fireworks, directed by Takeshi Kitano. Uh, but before that, uh, we will uh, cover our usual segment of media consumption. So, Jason, what have you been watching or reading in the last couple of weeks since last time we spoke? Well, since the last time we spoke, um, I downloaded two games for the PlayStation Vita that I own. Um, is that the one where the shop is closing soon? Yeah, Sony reversed course. Oh, okay. So um, they were going to close the PlayStation 3, PlayStation Vita and PSP shop. They're only going to close the PSP shop. So if you've got a PlayStation 3 or a PlayStation Vita, you can still purchase and download games. And um, I downloaded two, um, Grandia and Castlevania, the Dracula X Chronicles. So I've been wasting time playing Castlevania. Um, the uh, reason I got that one in particular is because it contains the original Castlevania, Rondo of Blood and Symphony of the Night. So you get three games in one, which is a pretty good deal. And I've always wanted to play those. Uh, in terms of uh, on, on a, sorry to, on a related note have you seen the the netflix castlevania animated show no i have not seen it but i've heard a lot about it fans seem to really enjoy it i've never played the game so i don't know how faithful it is uh, the soundtrack from the game seems to make an appearance on the show but otherwise i don't know how faithful the show is to the games oh uh if i ever get netflix it'll probably be one of the shows that i get but yeah you mentioned soundtrack yeah the soundtracks in the games are brilliant and um uh, in this particular one um, I'm enjoying, uh, you can find different tracks and play them in the menu uh, as, you know, they're Easter eggs, I suppose. Uh, so in terms of what I've been watching, which is uh, closer to what this podcast is really about, um, I've watched about six, seven movies. Um, the first one I watched was uh, Land of the Dead, the George A. Romero movie. Then I watched The Night Eats the World. That's a, uh, another zombie movie. That's a French one. Uh, it came out two years ago. I watched the Takashi Miike film uh, Over Your Dead Body. Uh, so these are all on Amazon Prime. 
if you have the chance to watch them, I urge you to watch them because they are good in their own individual ways. Uh, over your dead body, uh, I think it works better if you know the ghost story of Yotsuya, um, and if you've seen the different adaptations. If you go into this kind of blind, uh, it may not work as effectively because you may question what the characters are actually doing. So, what, what year is the movie released? That was two thousand. I want to say two thousand fourteen, two thousand sixteen. Okay, it was at a London film festival that I went to, but I didn't get to see it. It's on Amazon Prime, so I thought now's the best chance to see it. I also watched um, Burning, the um, uh, Lee Chang Dong film. I forgot to mention that in the last podcast. And uh, that's uh, absolutely mind-blowingly brilliant film. I really enjoyed uh, the mystery uh, and sort of a sort of detect- detective thriller, but it's, it's like an anti-detective thriller because like the atmosphere is just so um, diffuse and it's ambiguous. Uh, and I watched two Takashi Kitano movies, Violence Cop and Hanabi. So that's a race through my media consumption. Okay. So um, as, as far as uh, for me, I also watched a couple of Kitano films. Mostly I, I had not seen the, the final part of the Outrage trilogy. So I did that. I watched Outrage Coda uh, and a couple of his early films. I watched a series of films, um, five or six films that I don't want to name, from a Greek director, Theo Angelopoulos, because I was a guest at another podcast where we discussed that. So um, I decided to, to, give a, to take a look at his filmography again. So rewatching. I've been watching uh, the sh- TV show Mythic Quest. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, no. For... Apple TV. Are you familiar with um, the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yes. Yeah, so the, the creator of that show, Rob something, uh, is also the creator about Mythic Quest. And it's, it's, a, it's a, essentially another sitcom about the, a video game company. Uh, not, not as great, but pretty funny most of the time. I watched a South, an American slash South Korean film, Jun Ho for V Cinema, so the review should be up for that. Yeah, that's a very well written review. Uh thanks. And I watch I, I read a novel, uh The Stars Like Dust. I just finished that this morning actually. Uh, by Isaac Asimov. Um oh. not not that great, but uh it was fun to read. And that's that's uh that's my uh con- media consumption. I, I kinda hate that word, that phrase, <laughs> media consumption. But but I don't I don't, I can't find a, a better name for this segment, so we'll just call it like that. Next is our news seg- segment. So what do we have uh, for news this week? So there are a couple of online festivals in North America. Um, I think they're uh, region locked, so restricted to the United States. And some of the films in both of these festivals can only be accessed in certain states. So you'll have to check on the individual websites. But um, we've already tweeted out um, news about them. Uh, the first one to talk about is the Hawaii International Film Festival's um, J-Fest. Um, it's a Japanese film showcase. Um, it's currently underway and it ends on May 23rd. There are eight films in the lineup. I've only seen one, Ito, uh, but it's very good. I recommend that one. Um, and the filmmaker Satoko Yokohama will give a Q&A, which people can uh, tune into. Uh, they've also got the Kyoshi Kurosawa film Wife of a Spy as well. Uh, and there are a couple of films that have not yet been released in Japan. 
uh, theatrically. So that's a good chance to see some contemporary Japanese cinema. And the other film festival... So just to to clarify, is that is the Hawaii International Film Festival, is it just a Japanese film festival or is that just a segment of the festival and there are other other films in it? I think it's kind of like... uh, it's for a limited time. They've got this special showcase of Japanese films, so it's okay. not. I don't think it's the Hawaii International Film Festival as a whole. Okay, it's kind of like a sidebar. Okay, and it's an online film festival, right? Yeah. Okay, and it's running from May thirteenth to the twenty third. Uh running from May twenty fifth to the thirty first. This is Chicago Japan Film Collective. And there are nine films which uh, people can stream. Um, these are all independent films, and there are a couple of documentaries and seven fiction features. I've seen three or four of these. Uh, yeah, I've seen three of these. Um, and I've interviewed the directors, um, Videophobia, Yan, and um, Dynamite Graffiti. You can find the reviews and interviews on V Cinema or my blog. <laughs> but uh, these are all independent films and they're all highly rated um my particular recommendation would be videophobia it's a film that's shot in black and white and it's about uh, a woman who uh, live who is living in osaka and she finds herself um the victim of sort of like uh uh being recorded uh having sex without her permission and um her she becomes paranoid about it because the images are all online and um, she has no control over them. And um, I think it's a very timely and relevant um, film for the age we live in where you know, people are losing control of their um, sort of identities online and um, people being manipulated by um, you know, unseen forces online. Uh, it's quite interesting. And then you've got Prison Circle, which was, I, I believe it's the first ever documentary from in independent filmmaker shot in a Japanese prison and it shows sort of like um, a way of therapy that the prisoners get where they can talk about their past traumas and that's been highly rated as well. So that's That sounds interesting. Yeah, well it's the Chicago Japan Film Collective and um, it's going to run from May 25th to the 31st and um, as far as I can see like this is a really good way of seeing independent Japanese films. Yes, and as always, there'll be a relevant the relevant links on the website uh, on the page of the episode. So be sure, and and I'm sure you've tweeted about them as well. Yeah. So yeah, please uh, feel free to uh, drop us a line if you watch any of the films and tell us what you think. Yep. Uh, and, and the last thing that I, I wanted to add was last time, last episode, I, we talked about or at least I speculated that uh, Miyazaki's new film is about to come. Uh, to come out uh, like twenty at the end of twenty twenty one, and that was true based on the predictions of three years ago that it was going to take three years for the film to get completed. But I read some updates, and it turns out the film is that was supposed to be true, but the film is only about halfway done. So, <laughs> so it's probably not going to be out in twenty twenty one. So that is a the correction that I wanted to give. Uh, it's uh, I read it's um, quite funny, and this is a bit unrelated. But there's the the production had to go online, so you know every all all of the artists and Miyazaki and every every everyone that's part of the production uh, had to work independently with uh, on, from their own houses, and then just share their work online and and collate it that way. And I read that the production has sped up because of that. 
<laughs> so it's probably just Miyazaki is as as you would expect. He's the kind of guy who just kind of keeps gets in the way of himself and just keeps slowing everything down because of his perfectionism. But when he, he doesn't have that uh, ability to micromanage his stuff, maybe things just go a little bit smoother. I, yeah, I can also imagine you're saving time with the commute. And also when you have your co-workers around, you might be a little less productive. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think that, that depends. Some people are more productive when they're in a dedicated office versus their own home. I, I, I for example. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that, that was the update that I wanted to make sure that I corrected from last week. And that is also the end of our nukes segment. Now we're ready to jump into the main discussion, and that is talking about the 1997 Japanese film Hanabi, aka Fireworks, directed by Takeshi Kitano. So as always, would you like to give us a plot summary of the film, Jason? So released in Japan on January 24th, 1998. Hanabi was Takeshi Kitano's seventh film as a director. It was a return both in front of the camera and to the crime genre with which he had made his name with his opening salvo of films. Uh, the basic plot of Hanabi follows Detective Yoshitaka Nishi, a man beset by a series of tragedies. His young daughter has recently died and his wife Miyuki is in hospital with a terminal illness that will soon take her away. Things get worse for Nishi when a stakeout goes catastrophically wrong and his partner and best friend, Detective Horibe, is shot and left paralyzed while another detective is killed. Faced with so much guilt, Nishi quits the police force. After becoming heavily in debt to Yakuza, still plagued by guilt over what happened to his police colleagues and seeking to take care of his wife in her final days, Nishi concocts an audacious plan to rob a bank to provide aid to the people in his life to pay off all he owes, and to take one last holiday with his wife, so the two can share a final moment of happiness, all while being pursued by Yakuza and the police. All right, thank you. Great job, Jason. So uh, my question to start our discussion is, when did you first see this movie? What did you think? And where was this? Because I'm assuming, I mean, I'm making the assumption for you and for myself, of course, that this is not our only Kitano film. We've seen others. And like you mentioned in the beginning, and so where where was this, how was this in your uh, uh, exploration of Kitano films? So I, um, I can't remember if I first encountered Takeshi Kitano through Battle Royale or Takeshi's Castle, but this was the first film directed by him that I bought. Um, and it was when I was in high school and I got the DVD put out by uh, Momentum Pictures. And um, I was astounded because uh, on the sur on the surface, if just by reading the synopsis, um, it seems like a standard crime thriller. But the way he constructs it, it takes it in a completely different direction. And um, it was my sort. I was aware of his anarchic sense of humor, but like the the flashes of violence uh, in the film caught me off guard. And I liked. Uh, the subtle sense of humor he brought to this film, as opposed to the sort of chaotic stuff that he does with Takeshi's, Kitano, uh, Takeshi's Castle. I think this is probably one of my favorite Kitano films, um, and uh, it's one I've recommended to other people. And I've watched it um, periodically. Uh, the last time I watched it was when Third Windows Films released the Blu-ray edition in the UK back in 2016. Yeah, so I... 
I wouldn't say, well, we can talk about our ratings uh, at the end, but to give a little spoiler, this is not my favorite Kitano film, but it's definitely the one that I've seen uh, the most. And I, I'm pretty sure that I was acquainted by Kitano from, I was acquainted with Kitano from Takeshi's Castle, but I didn't know at the time. I think I have made that connection that the guy, uh, the weird dressed uh, kimono wearing uh, person in charge of Takeshi's Castle. Uh, who I don't think that was a show that he had anything to do with, except just being the host of it, like many game shows are. But he's become so, 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 so strongly affiliated with that. But that was definitely I, I used to watch that as a kid. The and it was it was something that I never missed. I was I was it was so much fun to watch that show. But I I don't think I made the connection that it's the same the same person who plays the the rough yakuza or policeman in in all those films is that that goofy guy from Takeshi's Castle so it took me a while to make that connection however i'm also pretty sure that the first kitano directed film was his atoichi film because that showed on tv all the time i think that was released somewhere around 2003 2004 if i'm not mistaken yes seems a bit right yeah and it, it was on TV as an action. Like we had this these different movie channels that, you, of course, you it was like satellite you had to pay for. But we had them when I was younger, when I was in high school, and um, and it was you know there was you had the drama channel, the comedy channel, and the action channel. And this it was a, a a fairly regular feature in the action channel. So I remember it very vividly, although I did not know who directed it. It was just something that I remember seeing. And I think after that. I sought out more films by that person because I was Zatoichi. At the t- and I'm, I, I, my opinion of Zatoichi, of Kitano Zatoichi, has gone down over the years. But at the time, I thought very highly of it, so I tried to seek out uh, more of his films. And obviously, this being a a Venice Film Festival Golden Lion winner, it was sort of the uh, the natural choice for the next film to explore. And I was, you know, shocked at how different the films are. And I think that's kind of. Uh, jumping from Hanabi as a first film, as a first, you know, serious Kitano film to the rest of his 90s stuff like uh, Sonatine and A Scene at the Sea and Violent Cup, which was 89 technically, I think is a great jumping off point. And I've seen, uh, like I said, it's not, Hanabi is not my favorite film, but I've seen it the most times because there's just, I think it's a, whether or not it is your favorite film or whether or not there's something else by Kitano that you like more, I think it's, a great representation of his, you know, what he did best, especially during the 90s, because I think we can argue that maybe in the 2000s, he, I'm not sure what exactly changed. I mean, his Outrage trilogy, there's definitely hints of what, of uh, his earlier, his, his 90s, his early directorial efforts, but there's, a, I think, a fundamental change that he underwent to as a, uh, as a director. I, th- I think he's always been self-referential and aware of his own sort of persona, media persona, in all of his films. And he's taken that to the nth degree in the 2000s. And he's made lots of self-reflexive films. Um, I have to admit, I haven't seen um, many of them apart from the first two Outrage movies. So this is based on just perception of reading about them. Yeah, and I, I am not... Uh, I was I enjoyed the first outrage where it came out. I've seen it once since then. Same, uh, I saw it, I saw it once when the second outrage came out because I wanted to remember it when the second came. And the second was somewhat of a step down, and then the third one was just I don't know. I'm, I I just saw it, so I need time to process it. It was by no means a bad film, but I don't know. It 
it's I don't I haven't seen many film many people make this connection online, but I see the outrage trilogy as an homage to the you know seventies Yakuza film by Kinji Fukasaku, who was a uh, a a great a great source of inspiration for Kitano, and it's just it's they're like I said they're not bad films by the meat, but I see them more as you know he's trying to make Yakuza films in that uh, vein as opposed to the means of expression for his own artistic uh, style that he did previously. Even his, you know, autobiographical trilogy, I don't know if you've seen it, sort of Glory, Takeshi's Glory to the Filmmaker and Achilles and the Tortoise. No, I haven't seen them. So those are very interesting films. They're not as well, they're not as highly regarded, but they're definitely personal films. And they're, uh, they have some really, really funny some of them are, 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 I think two of them are straight out comedies and one of them is a sort of a drama slash comedy. And they're really funny. And that's, it, it, perhaps it, it is noteworthy to start talking about Kitano a little bit, how he started and um, how, he be, how he transitioned to being a serious filmmaker. Because if you look at Kitano's start as a public persona, he was essentially a, a, for, a, a kind of stand-up comedian with, um, I forget the name of his partner. They were in a, a man's eye duo. Um, and they were called the Two Beats. Would you like to give some context about what that is and how it works in Japan, since you're more familiar with Japanese culture than I am? So Manzai is kind of like um, a stand-up comedy where you've got two people on the stage. One's the straight guy, one's the, the funny guy. And it's like um, back and forth banter uh, is the best way to describe it, where the straight man's um, asking questions and the, and the funny guy is going off on tangents. And there could be like... Uh, physical violence involved, but um, Kyoshi Kaneko and um, Takashi Kitano came out as the two beats, and they became massively popular because they pushed the envelope in terms of um, what you could joke about, very risque and raunchy material. And this was in the 1970s and 1980s. And then Kitano decided to go solo, and um, he became a solo comedian, and um, his star began to rise from there on and he became like a big comedian on television yeah it was uh and if i'm not mistaken kitano was the funny guy and the, his partner was the straight guy yes and it's i've i saw i tried to find some clips there's not that many with subtitles so it's hard but i did find some a couple of them and one of them was about how he had a a tiger cage and uh he led the tiger out but locked his mother in accidentally now he had a tiger running around the house <laughs> or something like that and it's you know of course uh humor is really hard to translate across cultures so uh you know it's not it's not a show that i would pay money to go to frankly but it's it's definitely what made him popular in japan but nevertheless it is amazing to see that even if you don't have any subtitles just to see him on the stage doing his you know his uh duo stand-up routine cut to you know him in Violent Cup or him in Sonatine or him at in uh, in Hanabi, and it's it seems like a, a, a an astounding transformation. And I think he's aware of that. That's why he when he when he's you know a game show host, which he's done a lot of that uh, apparently, or a documentary uh, narrator or other things. He is credited as B Takeshi, but when he's you know a serious director or a serious actor, he wants to be credited as Takeshi Kitano. Yeah, it's the split between um, the performer and the serious artist. And um, 
to become that serious artist was a very difficult task because he'd been acting in um, different films. And there's a, a sort of famous story where he was very proud of his performance in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And um, he snuck into a cinema to see how a Japanese audience would react to it. And whenever he was uh, seen on the screen, everybody was familiar with him as a comedian so they all laughed whenever he appeared on the screen and um that um hurt him uh, so uh, that hurt him <laughs> and he became determined to be taken seriously as uh, a film actor and film director from that point do you think he as a result of that he overcompensates a little bit with a uh, well we can we can expand on this a little later but with the over masculinity of his of his you know, violence and characters often portrays on screen? I think he's drawing on his interests and his real life. Like he's said in um, interviews and stories that he grew up in a in a part of Tokyo, Adachi, where it's like working class and you would find like Yakuza. And so he's familiar with that milieu. And like his sense of humor is, is, is so black that he would just pump it up for effect. But you can see sort of his background in Manzai um, shown in uh the film kids return with through two characters you've got to be aware that he's reacting to the japanese entertainment industry he's parodying it uh on some level and getting any the film uh it's a series of vignettes about a guy who's obsessed with car sex and it goes through all sorts of different genres like he's mocking the zatoichi samurai movies he's mocking gangster movies he's mocking sci-fi he's um he's stealing from all different popular trends in Japanese entertainment and um, from world entertainment as well. He's got like a Ghostbuster section. Uh, and uh, you, you've got to be aware that with his films, he's always sort of critiquing Japanese entertainment as well as like um, playing into people's um, perceptions of what it is. Yeah. And it's, of course, which was very much part of because he was a very popular actor that started another feeling. He was very popular, you know, in people's household as a TV personality. He was a comedian on TV, and then he was a game show host and all kind of other things that he did that, you know, may, I suppose he made fun of, uh, or, or at least he commented on in his uh, cinematic work. So there's like almost these two aspects of him as a, as a creator or as, a, as an artist and then a, a celebrity. Yeah. Like he's done everything from hosting variety shows to writing novels and recording albums, and uh, like he's had avant-garde. Like on on one hand, he's got like an avant-garde uh, uh, techniques that he uses, but he's also got a very childish sense of humor. Which like the avant-garde techniques get taken to the movies, whereas the childish sense of humor remains in television. So it's hard for an international audience to understand quite like his comedic style and um, how people regarded him as a comedian at that time without being able to see all of those clips and TV shows. Yeah. And to, uh, to, to, to go back to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence a little bit, uh, like, I don't know if you've seen that film, but his performance is really good. On, yeah, I, on, I have seen it. Yeah. But it's not, he's not what stands out of that film, in, in my opinion. I think David Bowie and Joe Hisaishi who will go on to score a lot of Kitano's films. Oh, you mean um, Ryuichi Sakamoto? Ryuichi Sakamoto, sorry. Oh, yeah. I don't. I got those two mixed up. Has Ryuichi Sakamoto scored any Kitano films? I don't think I so. don't think so. So okay. Joe Hisaishi started scoring Kitano's films from A Scene at the Sea. Yeah. 
and I think he stopped with Zatoichi. Okay, yeah. So now, so sorry about that. I don't know why I got those two mixed up. But yeah, so Ruchi Sakamoto and David Bowie are, you know, standouts in that film. But Kitano's performance is certainly, you know, very good, very noteworthy. And I suppose it's it's easy to see why he was kind of sort of catapulted into stardom. But to just go on along with his career up to Hanabi, he was supposed to star in a Kinji Fukasaku film that ended up being Violent Cup. But due to health reason, Fukasaku could not could not fulfill his director duty, so Kitano asked if he could take over as a director, and then ended up taking the film in a very different direction, uh, which was his directorial debut. After that, then he directed a, a, a series of films with, uh, I believe, a scene at sea coming right after, and then Sonatine, which I don't remember what, exactly what festivals it showed, but it was the film that gave him some international acclaim. Uh, he shot... Oh, no. Uh, Sonata, what, what, what year was Sonatine released? Uh, 1993. Okay, yeah. And then after, okay, so I, I just want to make sure, because I, I, I'm going off of memory. I haven't written any of this down, which I should have. But, uh, but he, he then in 1994 had, uh, had, an, had an accident, had a motorcycle accident, uh, which uh, almost left, him, left half of his body paralyzed. Uh, he was able... He, that's when he took up uh, painting. I'm, I'm I'm not doing a great job at narrating this, but like I said, I haven't <laughs> I haven't written anything down. But yeah, he he had a, a a terrible motorcycle accident in 1994 that left half of his body paralyzed. He was able to recover of that almost miraculously. After that, the film Getting Any, which you mentioned, came out, but that he had recorded uh, he had recorded that before his accident, so that did not have his accident didn't have anything to do with that. The film that he did after Seized Action was Kids Return. Uh, and even though I have not seen that film, I, I remember reading that that was a planned film, that he, he had already planned that film before the action, so he just took up the director duties after. So I think perhaps maybe we can make the argument that the first film where his accident really, really kind of affected his creative choices was Hanabi in 1997. Although, please feel free to correct me if you think that Kids Return does have his does have influences that his accent may have uh, affected his directing of that movie. Um, I can't think of any immediately. Like I know it draws heavily on his background, especially like the kids doing the manzai routine and the working class characters. Um, as you say, getting any was shot before um, the the motor scooter accident, and um, Hannah B was probably his. Um, first time in front of the cameras after the motorcycle accident. And you can see, so to, we, to jump into the discussion, there is, I think, a hint of nihilism that goes through uh, Kitano's career, but I, nowhere is that stronger than Kitano's uh, Hanabi, which he did after the, after the accident, so fireworks, where... It is centered on arguably two characters. So we can say two characters are the stars uh, of that film. Kitano's character himself, Nishi, and Horibe, his uh, partner detective. And the film sets up from the very beginning that these are two characters who have no reason to live, as, as they see it. And it does not, at any point, give them any reason to live. It lets them sort of wail in that 
in that feeling of if that sort of me- meaninglessness that is it's, it's just unique i think in 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 any kind of uh in any other i don't I, i'm kind of i'm at a loss for words because i don't know exactly how to how to describe it but there's there's been plenty of existentialist oriented dramas but they're always the 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 theme is always to kind of give give your characters a way out to find meaning in life but i don't think kitano does that in any way he is just you know at the end they just commit suicide and that's it there's no there's no optimism to be found i don't know what you think about that i i feel complete opposite <laughs> Wait, actually, well, no. Violent Cop is definitely nihilistic. It's like whatever. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's I. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have categorized it as the most, but it's just you know. I I mostly wanted to compare it to Sonatite, but yeah, you are you are correct. I find his earlier films that he stars in are uh, nihilistic, and the like. Most of his films are focused on marginalized outsiders. They or they're cops. They're violent people. They're criminals. And they're part of a system that will use them up and discard them. So with Violent Cop, you have these, like these two men, two extremely dangerous men, locked in a, a deathly embrace, and it feels so important. But the end shows that they're replaced by like the people who are underneath them, the juniors, so to speak. And um, Boiling Point was an irreverent comedy, but like uh, life was very cheap in that. Um, and at Sonatine, yeah, like all the gangsters, they die cheap deaths. Um, it, it's like nothing they do has any real point. But I, I actually, I this is this show is not about Sonatine, but just I, I'm not necessarily disagree with you on the on the on the dying part. But it is, I do think that the film finds some meaning in their friendship at the be- at the beach when they are connecting there. The, Hanabi lacks a moment like that. That's 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 what I'm trying to where my sort of calculus comes in. Where I say Hanabi is more nihilistic than Sonatine. Not that, that there is a nihilism in all his early films, like you mentioned. Yeah, nihilism runs in a lot of his films. But actually, I, I find Hanabi finds meaning. Like the meaning comes in what Nishi does after the stakeout goes wrong, and it's how he's. He's there for other people. Like, that's what enriches his... That's what gives his meaning life. That's what gives his life meaning. Like, he's there for his wife and for Haribe after he's suffered that terrible accident, after he's been paralyzed. So, so I mean, that's... I, I sort of can accept that a little bit, but also neither... So the only, the only person who expresses an obvious joy for what uh, Kitano or Nishi, his character's name, does for them is his wife. Where she says, she doesn't, it, it's, it's incredible when you become aware of it, but she has no dialogue at all in the movie except that final thank you. Uh, otherwise, both his boss, you know, I keep calling him his boss, but it's his partner, uh, Detective, Detective Horibe, and the other widow, there's no evidence that they are able to find meaning thanks to um, thanks to Kitano's actions, so we they get a box in the end, which we don't know what it is. But you know, as far as as far as I can tell, the only thing that Kitano does for them is give them things that they can't afford otherwise, because they're just poor as hell due to uh, unfortunate circumstances, like the painter, the painting kit. But I don't see, at least focusing on Hariba, because that's who, who we spend most time with, except outside of Nishi. He is suicidal till the very end where he actually writes suicide on one of his paintings and then sprays throws paint on it and i think that's 
maybe the final thing, the final shot of him that we see, if I remember correctly. And it's we don't get any hint that he is over his suicidal tendency. He's just he lives because he doesn't, you know, he he thinks he has to, but he I don't I don't see him necessarily finding meaning in that. But you are right that his wife does have that joyous moment at the end where she is happy right before she goes, even though she, you know, we don't get any sense that she consented to being shot in the head <laughs> at the very no. end of the of the film. So that just Kitano's hypermasculinity showing there. Yeah, like this is again, he's uh all about crime films. The people it's a very masculine genre and um he focuses mostly on men throughout his filmography. And um I instead of nihilism, I think there's fatalism in Hanabi. And um like there is meaning to be found in existing for others. So the the Tanaka's widow, the the cop that get that dies, like she's got a son to live for, and she comments that um, well, there's no jobs going on in the recession. So I assume that oh yeah, Kitano... I did I did make that connection, but this is during the the Asian financial crisis. Yeah, so she can only get a a, a job at a deli. So she's obviously strapped for cash. Um, Kitano sends her the money some of the money from the bank heist. I saw with Haribe, I saw like he came out of of a very dark um place. Like yes, he still feels suicidal thoughts, but art gave him a way to sort of express himself to gave him something to focus on beyond like um feeling sorry for himself because he's disabled, feeling alone because he's been abandoned by his wife and um daughter. Can we just say what a dick move that is? You know, when you're to leave your spouse because they had a an accident, an accident. Just just throwing that out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we found like it's almost almost comical. Yeah, he gets shot, and then the next thing, ah, oh, yeah, his wife and child left him. How sad is that? Yeah, it, I, like, this is just in service to the plot, really. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if they're such a close knit family, he's got nothing else to live for. <laughs> it's, it's it's you know like, and this is not necessarily a criticism, but an observation is that female roles are so minimal in Kitano's films that even such an important moment as as his as a, a wife and daughter abandoning their husband, their the Horibe is just done off screen. We're just told about it. Yeah, like um, like in Kitano movies. Like they're oftentimes are like uh, objects, especially in getting any religious sex objects, um, or uh, domestic angels, or mostly unknowable or off the screen. And I think it's the same thing here in um, Hanabi, where like we hear about Haribe's family, but we don't ever actually see them, and um, it seems unreasonable for them to be cast in that like if they're supposed to be so close but it's just in service to the plot i guess yeah even in in outrage coda the entire sort of starting point for the conflict between the various gangster factions because that's what the film is about starts because one person abuses a couple of prostitutes and yet those two prostitutes are given maybe 20 seconds of screen time they're just shown crying in a corner and that's about it so he's definitely that's definitely I think a blind spot for Kitano. I was, like we um talked about Li Changdong's green fish and how like uh the the femme fatale has little agency but over the course of his career Li Changdong's created very complex female characters. Ab- absolutely, yeah. And Takashi Kitano has just remained focused on sort of gangster guys and uh, crooked cro- cops. Yeah. 
and like you said, that's probably what he knows. Yeah, it's and it's no by no means a criticism of uh, this particular film. Like I, I think audiences will be able to forgive that because the rest of the film is just so good. Uh, one thing that I would just like to interject with is you mentioned he does what he knows, and you know one thing that you said is he lived with Yakuza. And another thing that I read was that in his comedy, during his comedy routines, either solo or with his partners, Yakuza would come into the comedy clubs where he performed and they would invite him for a drink and they would tell him stories. Yeah, like Yakuza will often try and invite comedians to perform at parties and it's kind of like a no-no in the Japanese entertainment industry. You don't do that sort of thing. And if you do, you get blacklisted by um, Wait, the talent you agencies. Don't do, you don't accept or you don't reject you don't, which one you don't accept like offers from criminals oh but wouldn't be that dangerous for you it probably wouldn't be dangerous but it's kind of like the if you belong to a talent agency you don't want to sully the image i see okay yeah it's it's there's a lot of insider that i'm i guess i'm not privy to and it would be fascinating to to sort of understand exactly because i know i've read in south korea cinema that is uh that does happen where you know Sometimes in in a lot of gangster films, gangster will show up at the set and give advice to the <laughs> to the directors, uh, or you know, not not maybe not necessarily on the set, but will have meetings and you know, uh, will buy drinks and tell stories, and that's how they're able to make films a little bit more accuracy. I don't know exactly if the same familiarity exists in Japanese culture, but perhaps I've heard that some entertainment uh, companies and talent agencies are run by gangsters, and uh, a really uh, good comic film on this is um sean sonos why don't you play in hell where are gangsters oh trying that's to... a recent one right 2015 2016 yeah i think it's 2015 but it's like a gangster's trying to make a movie with his daughter who is the star okay and, and the other thing is you know you mentioned about how uh, horibe is trying to sort of combat his his essentially having having nothing to do on his having no time having too much time on his hands with painting I think it, it sort of invites the speculation that perhaps that's how Kitana was able to maybe combat any, you know, depression that may have uh, risen as a result of his accident and potential paralysis that he, you know, escaped from, but could have very well been a reality for him. He, he's on the record as stating that it was like a subconscious, the scooter, the motor scooter accident was like a subconscious um, suicide attempt. And we... We know that he used art as uh, therapy to try and um, you know get back to some sort of normal living, and the pictures he painted uh, are used in his films. And um, I think one shows up in Battle Royale as well. Yeah, though that's true. They're used extensively in Hannah B. So you you can see that this film, as a person who's aware of his media persona, as someone who draws on his real life. As someone who works in uh, details from his real life, like the paintings are, that are shown in Hanabi are there in uh, are his, and so you can see this film as uh, you know, you know being uh, sort of uh, you can see this film as drawing from his life is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, and it's I I noticed it. I mean, I might have noticed it before and forgot, but this time when I watched it, they're everywhere. His paintings, almost every scene in the background, they're not. The, the camera doesn't draw attention to them, but if you pay attention to the background or the sides, there's paintings everywhere in the walls, in the other displays where you might have just like a, a generic art piece. It's something by Kitano. So that was, I was surprised to see that this time. 
Yeah, it's like in the hospitals, in the Yakuza gang's headquarters. The coffee shop. In the in the onsen hot spring. Yeah. If you if you know sort of Kitano's sort of abstract absurdist painting style, you'll be able to spot them. And um there's some really interesting paintings. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would like to, to talk about the paintings a little bit, but I you mentioned something about, you know, the, the enjoyability of this film. And I was a little bit surprised. No well Maybe not that much, but I watched the DVD introduction, which is interesting enough, was filmed by Tarantino in one of the DVDs that was released of this film for North America. Uh, and I know I've said a lot of negative things about Tarantino, no regrets, but one thing that I have to give him credit for is his knowledge as a film historian. There's just, is unparalleled. And he was talking about, you know, he was talking about his roots as a comedian and why it was somewhat somewhat of a challenge for him to be taken seriously by the general audience because of what he was mostly associated with. And that's nothing unique to Japanese culture. We have typecasting everywhere in the world, pretty much. Actors have to deal with that. But one thing that he mentioned, and perhaps you can elaborate on this if you're familiar with uh, with the, the issue, is that in this particular time, in the 80s and the 90s, the predominant demographic of moviegoers was women and because uh, Kitano didn't make movies that were particularly targeted towards women his movies were never that that successful in the box office so i don't know if there's if, if there's something that you want to confirm there or or elaborate or something because i'm not i'm not that familiar with the business side of cinema in japan in the 90s or now if that is still a thing because i know in the U.S., for instance, that was true at a certain point. I think in the in the seventies and eighties, where mo- women at a rise of television, women were suddenly more likely to go to the cinema versus men. And apparently, the same thing happened in Japan. I'm not entirely sure about demographic shifts, but it wouldn't be too much of a surprise, especially when you have a rise in the number of women in the workforce and like an increase in disposable income. Uh, what I do know is like. Uh, not like none of his films are really financially successful until after Hanabi became a big hit and people started taking him seriously. After you know, critics from around the world said, "Look, this guy's a genius." Yeah, and I think I think at that time, so starting with Sonatine and then Hanabi winning the Golden Lion, I think it was perhaps that's no longer the case because I think I don't know how Outrage performed in the box office, but I, I kind of get the feeling that's a film that would do okay in Japan, even though not necessarily so elsewhere. But I think in the 90s, he was someone who was, you know, admired outside of Japan and not so much inside of Japan. Although Kikujiro, I think he was very popular in Japan when he was released. Yeah, it wasn't until Hanabi that people started taking him seriously as a filmmaker. And it was like because he got... Um, garlanded with the golden line at the venice film festival but was it because of that because i would also make make the argument that he also did change his style a little bit like ikujiro is a much more it's a very different film and then battle royale uh, is also you know a, a different film uh so i mean i yes i agree that it is probably they t- start taking him seriously but i also think that he did start making films that were maybe a little bit more commercially towards co- palatable Exactly. Although I have not seen Dolls, which he made after Battle Royale, because I've seen... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like, um, Brothers, just another spin on, like, his gangster tales, and Dolls is, like, a really abstract, dreamlike, um, a trilogy of tales about love that draws upon Bunraku theatre. 
and so is his uh, tr- you know most of his uh, uh, autobiographical trilogy Takeshi's Glory to the Filmmaker and uh, Achilles and the Torch they're very abstract uh, but funny I, I haven't seen those three yeah I mean they're Mm, I they I think they're worth they're worth a watch. But then Satoichi, which is also a very commercially, I, I don't know if he was successful per se, but it was definitely uh, there was attempt to make it more commercially palatable, like you said. Well, it's definitely lauded by critics around the world at the time, and it it did get played on like um, television in the UK. Yes, yeah, and I, of course I saw it on television. But um, I think now I've read some retrospective looks at that film. I don't think it's as um, as highly regarded as it was when it first came out. And and I think Zatoichi is held as maybe a, a somewhat of a low point in the director's career. Really? Uh, I, I I seem to... I think so, yeah. I think it's not considered... And I... I kind of have to agree. I don't... I Like I said, I loved it. I've seen... I saw it so many times. Uh, you know, around that time, but now I watched it recently, and I said, mm, "The CGI does not hold up at all." Like you can, the CGI knives and cuts and bloods look so bad, so dated by by today's standards. Uh, that I like it's 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 just enough to take you out of the movie. Although, again, maybe that's that's not a the greatest problem with it. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the effect of maybe it got too popular and maybe people were tired that it overshadowed the film, the director's other films that that maybe are uh, deserve a little bit more praise. I get the sense it could be like um, diminishing returns where like the early part of his career where he's trying to get attention, where he's subverting genres so much. Perhaps it's that those are like his best films and then like later on as he becomes more comfortable in the role, as he becomes more abstract, he starts create uh, or creating films that don't quite hit as hard. Yeah, and of course, his his last uh, directorial attempts are not have not been. I think that, that haven't had quite that impact. So the three outrage film, and then he did another one like a a heist comedy film that I did not see. Yeah, Ru- like Ruzo and, and the Seven, Seven Henchmen. Yeah, D- did you see that one? I haven't seen it. I've seen Outrage and Beyond Outrage. And um, they were kind of flat for me. It's just um, I, I I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. There's no passion behind it, uh, and there's none of the subversiveness or experimentation of his early works. So it was just like a gangster, a standard gangster plot. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, like there's nothing to set them apart from you know like all the other gangster films that are out there, which there are a lot. Yeah, it's just like here's the violence and the nihilism. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah. And I wonder part of it, part of maybe like the dismissal of his somewhat of his more recent film is that he has, as a personality, he has come out with a lot of uh, anti-gay statements or something like that, or racist statements. I can't remember exactly if any of the true, I don't know if you would know more. And, and he maybe he has been taken down a notch a little bit by the Western audience. I, I don't think the Western audience quite gets his television persona or his boisterousness, his childish sense of humor. And I don't know how much um uh uh you know they get how xenophobic he could be um i don't think that's you know the sort of current climate that we live in i don't think that's played too much in critics um sort of devaluing his work i think it's just that the work doesn't stand up to his early stuff well that's definitely true but i'm I'm, i definitely have seen you know the last two to three years i've definitely seen articles and you know these uh, uh you know vulture or uh uh, IndieWire or all these uh, 
uh, Collider, all these, you know, entertainment magazines where they have they have written articles about it. Although now that you mention, it could be just his his very dark sense of humor that is at play uh, that kind of amps the xenophobia uh, and the homophobia, as opposed to him being genuine in that respect. Although I, I don't really know him that much. Yeah, from what I get. It's like he's an equal opportunity. Yeah, this is dangerous territory. Now. Um, but he's like an equal opportunities, like childish prankster. Um, yeah, his humor isn't sophisticated, um, and he he's got an eye on what the international audience thinks, but he doesn't particularly care. Yeah, but I, I agree with you that it's not. I don't. I don't think that's that's the main. If it's if it's it might be a contributing factor at most, but it's not the main thing why his work is not as well received because I do think that post Zatoichi around that time, like I said, his trilogy, his autobiographical trilogy is is interesting. Although it does kind of it does it's hit or miss, and it's mostly miss than hit. But it's it it has some interesting to it. But the outrage trilogy is very flat, and I do think he's perhaps lost his touch. Mm. Uh, post the heyday of his career. Mm. But speaking of the abstractness of it, I think this is, you know, that's, I think, where his paintings come in because I think there's definitely an abstractness to them. And when you see the paintings in Hanabi, going back to that film, although we could maybe talk about paintings in his other films as well, is you can make some obvious through lines in his editing. And I think the editing especially is very clever in how he does it in Hanabi. But, you know, we see Horiba drawing a family, enjoying fireworks, and then Kitano is trying to uh, blow up a firework or um, uh, other other things like the snow versus the snow, the snow in the mountain versus the snow in the paintings and things like that. But then we have some completely bizarre images that seem to have no no direct through line to the plot, like the animals with plants with various plants as heads yeah some of the some of the paintings like uh act as a greek chorus or they prefigure events that are going to exactly yeah. occur later and um like the family watching the fireworks that's like a, a um definitely a reference to the two detectives um and that they've like uh, in haribi's case he's lost his family um in kitano's and um, oh, in Nishi's case, and his wife Miyuki, they've lost their daughter. So you and it, these pictures add to the sense of um, loss that these two men feel, and they're very poignant. And then, like you said, you've got the abstract ones of like um, owls with sunflowers for eyes, and like um, women in kimono with um, tulip heads, and um, kanji for snow sprinkling uh, a white landscape. Yeah, and that 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 pans to suicide. Yeah, and then you'll get like a hard cut to the next scene, and like that's a, a brilliant editing technique because it sort of, you know it cuts out all of the um it cuts out all the fat and uh of a narrative where you don't need the build up, you can just go straight to the action, and um it leaves audiences slightly off kilter as to what's going on. Yeah, so he doesn't just to to, to oversimplify it. He doesn't show you know. Uh, the person's hand grabbing the water and drinking. I'm just making a random example here, but it doesn't show like any film it would show the actor grabbing the glass of water, drinking it. It just shows the glass of water and then the person being, being having have, immediately after having drank it. So it's like cuts to the bare minimum of what he needs to show to imply action. There's that scene that always kind of startles me a little bit when he goes in the beginning of the film where he goes to the hospital to visit his wife, and then there's like an abrupt cut to Koriba getting shot. 
and and then back to him. And there's I remember an interview that he gave about fireworks, and he said fireworks are beautiful, but if you're not paying attention, they can scare you. Like the noise scares you, and that just reminds me of that because the 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 gunshot, like every time there's a gunshot in the film, it's like so abrupt and loud, and it's just a very very disturbing noise that they make in the film. It's it's a very quiet film. And exactly, like, except except for the gunshots. Yeah, like even when you've got two characters like Miyuki and Nishi together, they don't say anything <laughs> until the final scene, and so it makes the sounds and the music stand out even more. Yeah, and sometimes it will show the the two cops talking about, for example, like their boss or Horibe or something. They say, "Oh, I heard he he his wife left him," or. I heard his wife has only like a month where they're talking about. But then you see all of them in the car just sitting quietly uh, when the camera goes close. And it's like you realize it's all voiceover that the conversation has happened at some other time. And we're just hearing it. But what we're seeing is a, a different time. And that's another thing that the film does so well is it, especially early in the film, it kind of plays with time in a very interesting way where it, it starts before Horibe gets shot and we see Horibe get shot. But then we cut to much, much later when both Horibe and another cop have been shot and uh, Kinishi visits the, the widow. But then it, we go back to where the time where the other cop was shot in that shopping mall or shopping center, whatever that is. I, it's, it's an un- underground place. So it could be like a subway. Like in Japan, you've got some subways which are so, or, or train stations, which are so huge. You've got cafes and the underground parts. Yes. Uh, but it's, there's rarely do we get a hint as to where we are time-wise, like they said with the voiceovers, that it's happening at a different time from what we're seeing in the actors. And, and yes, there is some slow motion at times where, yes, okay, this is probably a memory, a flashback, but sometimes we just, it seems to cad back, back and forth so, so without a warning that it is, it does play with time in, a, in an interesting way. It, it, it's like, it's, a non a nonlinear plot structure where you've got setup and payoff somewhere down the line, and like all of the connective tissue, like a person, like I need to get into that room. Person walks up the stairs, goes to the door, opens it. That's all cut out. It's just person then in the room, that sort of thing, and um, it's all about the important details, and you it trusts the audience to be able to like link together the order that it happens in. And by having it happen like that, you you're kind of like aware that Nishi is stuck with these memories of like his wife being sick, um, his partner getting paralyzed, and the uh, stakeout going wrong, and uh, like how it informs his later actions. Then it's like he's haunted by these flashbacks, which are interspersed in the action. Yeah, and it it all it it's all that all happens pretty early in the film because. Like the the next seventy five seventy percent or so is a very much more linear than the beginning of the film, mm. and and you know it's the same thing with the the tragedy aspect of the film, which is why I said the film sort of emphasized the nihilism or the fatalism so much because all the bad things happen very early. So we find out his wife is sick and then his daughter has died. So there's and then he's also there's on top of that is the guilt. Of having let both his partners down, so both both cops are arguably shot because of Nishi's Nishi wasn't there for them, or he caused he aggravated the situation something else. Then when Horibe who gets shot, and then his wife and daughter leaves him, and then he attempts suicide, and that's all 
established in the first 20 minutes of the film or so. The rest is the the rest of the film is about dealing with the consequences of all these tragedies. So it's not about the tragedy itself. It's about, you know, how do these people cope or or the the lack of their ability to cope with these with these tragic circumstances. Yeah, this is Nishi coming to terms with his guilt and like trying to give his wife like that final moment of happiness. But but does he does he come to terms with the guilt? And do you think he succeeds? Because I like I mean, and this is perhaps maybe where we disagree a little bit. Because I don't think he's able to. I think he he the good time that he gives his wife is akin to paying a debt. He owes his wife. She his wife is about to die. He owes her that good time. But he's I don't see any evidence that he hasn't been able to forgive himself for what he thinks he is guilty of. I've like early throughout the film well in the early parts of the film you've got detectives talking about how they never see their wives and you know that's a common statement of his where especially with that generation where men would just dedicate themselves to their work and then once they've retired it's like they've got nothing and the wife's got a separate life and they call men like that like um damp leaves because they they end up clinging to the wife because they've got nothing better to do and it's kind of like this is like he's trying to make amends to his wife spend moments together and i think it's easy to sort of assume that he and his wife are alienated from each other because of the tragedies they've suffered, like daughter's dead and she's got leukemia. But actually, when you watch them together, they make a nice pair. Um, you can see that there's a love there. They just don't need to speak it. Um, I f- like this being a Takashi Kitano film, like the team playing a uh, laconic tough guy you have to assume that like just by giving people money or giving them an opportunity um you know that sort of makes amends but what the film's about is like being there for other people and nishi is there for the widow he provides her some financial security he's there for haribe he provides haribe like something to focus on so he doesn't dwell on like everything that he's lost and he's there for Miyuki, um, uh, like in the final moments, uh, like he's able just to be there, just um, and to say, you know, we'll go into the afterlife together. <laughs> and I think it's going to have to be down to the audience whether you think that uh, he's able to overcome like his guilt or, or you know to, to atone for like mistakes that he's made. Um, at this being like, a, I, I think like. I'm an optimist. I like to think that, you know, within the realms of the genre that, yeah, he's managed to do that. Like his actions have given meaning to his life after like it's been taken away from him with so much tragedy. I, I tend to focus a little bit more on the cynical aspect, although I would say that I think the, the actress who plays Miyuki, his wife, is shortchanged a little bit. I would have appreciated her to have a little bit more of a role, although I can't deny that they have great chemistry. Yeah. She and Kitano. What's the name of the actress? Kayoko Kishimoto. Yes. I I don't, I I mean, she kind of looked familiar, so I might have seen it in other stuff. But yeah, she and Kitano have great chemistry together, although, like I said, I would have liked her to see a little bit more, more of her. She is, I don't know how to describe it, but she... I, I mean, at first, I thought that she has some sort of brain disorder that like rendered her senile or something, because she looks outright childish almost in her films. But no, she just has leukemia, so I don't, I don't know. I, I felt like a little bit too infantilized in her behavior. Uh, but I don't know. If, I don't know if that was if that was your perception as well of her. I think yeah, women 
do end up shortchanging Kitano films. Um, in terms of this, I just I just assumed she was very quiet, like she was devastated. Yeah, which would, would, would not be an unusual sort of traditional Japanese uh, Japanese female portrayal in in my experience of watching Japanese cinema. I, yeah, I th- I think like it might be a cultural thing where uh, also because like it's. I've been told that like Japanese couples, they don't say, but especially older ones, they they don't say "I love you." They don't do anything direct like that. They're quite indirect in the way they. No public displays of affection. Yeah, that sort of thing. So it's kind of, and it's kind of like you you as you watch this couple together, you might assume that they're alienated from each other, but the more you see them together, the more you see they go really well. And so I just assume that she's quiet, and um, he's like. Just being him, just being present is enough for her because, like, that's how deep their love is. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, even despite that, I do think they have great chemistry, and I think she's—you definitely buy their affection for each other. It's not, you know, and even at the end where it's, she says the only the only dialogue that she has is "I love you." I mean, thank you. Uh, uh, it doesn't it doesn't feel forced. It feels like yes, that that moment has been earned uh, because you know, did uh, Kitano did give her a good time. I'm not sure that I'm convinced that she wants to die like that, but I, I, I'm willing to suspend <laughs> my disbelief temporarily for that moment. I, yeah, it's kind of like, I suppose, uh, like, you, you might watch this and, like, you'd be blowing, and then, like, a lady might watch this and think, oh, why doesn't she get a choice in the matter? I think my, nihil- my cynicism is a little bit justified because I think Kitano is going slightly for the same thing at the end where there's this, and we have to talk about Joyce's music which is fantastic uh, throughout the film perhaps one of the most memorable aspects of the film in in what is an otherwise fantastic film but he plays this beautiful music and he pans it shows the kite the little kid running and it runs across the sky for this beautiful image and then like as it pans towards the sky you see you hear the two gunshots and you see the terrified face or mostly blank stare of the little girl presumably seeing these two adults throw their brains out. So I do think that my nihilism is a little bit warranted there, although maybe maybe there is a sense of hope uh, like you are seeing in the film. I don't know. I, uh, like, you can interpret it that... Um, and that little girl was played by um, Takeshi Kitano's daughter, I think. Okay. Is she, is she... Has she become... Is that her only role, or has she become an actress on her own, right? I should have checked, but um, that is Takeshi Kitano's daughter. The, yeah, they're like... There are two endings, like, uh, or possibly three. Like, uh, he just fires the gun in the air, or he kills the two cops. But the most likely ending is that it's a joint suicide. And, you know, with the crime, with a masculine crime drama like that, that's the sort of thing you would expect. But they commit suicide. Murder suicide. Yes. One of his few vanities is that he has a soft spot for portraying himself as a tough guy. And he goes overboard with that in the outrage films. Like he is virtually indestructible in those films. Mm. Uh, so he's definitely, he's definitely does that where he has definitely, if, if, there is the, if there are two possible options, he always goes with the one that makes him look most macho. But the ending for Hanabi, like he's constantly rejecting her, like holding him. And then when she says thank you, and he wraps her his arm around her. That's a very beautiful moment. I I agree. Yeah, like I think their relationship is there's there's they have a few tender moments in their relationship, like the whole thing with the cards. Mm. Where he's uh, uh, uh she figures out that he is observing, he's uh cheating by looking the mirror behind her. Mm. 
Uh, although again, that that also uh, I think contributes a little bit to the infantilization of her. But but I guess it's 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 uh, it's to be expected. I think if like the fact that she figured it out shows that she's not a complete fool. Yeah, absolutely. Like she's aware of like what he's doing. So uh, what was I gonna? The other thing that I wanted to the the soundtrack by Joe Hisaishi is just so great and so there's there's three or four different themes that kind of cycle throughout the movie and they're just they have this sort of sweetness about them that you would not normally expect in in a gangster film but this is not a typical gangster film like you said there's a lot of silence that the music helps fill and there's a lot of you know just people staring at the camera like there's a lot of front shots that you would not normally see especially if Kitano like how the movie opens it opens with the art pieces that are presumably are drawn by Kitano himself and then it has there's these two uh, thugs that have dropped something on his car and we don't see them we don't necessarily it's not film like you would normally expect a film like this so you show you have the two gangsters with a frontal shot and then we have Kitano with a frontal shot and then cut to him kicking their asses but we don't actually see the process we just see the conclusion of that of that mm. what what presumably happened in that scene or you hear the sound effects or you might just see a shadow yes yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's the the punches just sound so whatever. There's a punch, and there's so much blood. Like you wouldn't expect a single punch would would generate so much blood, but it does. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he uh, cut the scalp or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe the rings could be the, the they have rings in their fingers that just you know they 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 cut your nose or something. Yeah, They're like uh, Joe Hisaishi is probably famous for his Studio Ghibli works and. um his work with Takeshi Kitano, who he stopped working with after, um, or with Satoichi. In any particular reason, or are they just just normal? I f- I'd like on the record, Kitano said he says she's too expensive. I'm not sure what happened there. Oh, interesting. I mean, he has become fairly popular, so it's, it wouldn't be surprising. Yeah, probably primarily through Studio Ghibli. Yeah, I mean, although arguably his most famous score is Kikujiro. Absolutely, yeah, like um, the music, if I had to say which are the most memorable scores, it would be the works he's done with Takeshi Kitano, like Kikujiro, um, Hanabi, and Kids Return. They've all got excellent themes. But I can, like, like if you ask me to hum Hanabi's theme or, or Kids Return, like, I, I'd be able to do it. <laughs> I think, you know, it's also, I think that antithesis where, you know, you wouldn't expect something so sweet to play in a, in a hard-boiled gangster film, whereas in, in a Studio Ghibli film, it, it kind of, I mean, they're beautiful soundtracks anyway, and they're also memorable. We shouldn't, I don't, don't want to say, I don't want to say that they're not, but you're, they're, they fit the form of the style of the film very well, whereas this antithesis gives them a, a kind of edge that there is this, even though it is a, a very, you know, rough and, and violent story that is being told, there is a deeper meaning to it. There's a deeper uh, exploration that's happening that I, I feel like the music helps the audience to kind of get a hint of that, to not just focus on the superficial violence that occurs and, and get try to understand the characters that are shown on film a little bit better. Mm, yeah, we're quite often showing, showing close-ups of people's faces as they're just contemplating life. And the music provides a perfect compliment. And you see this, the strength of the actors that they're able to emote effectively, like especially like Ren Sugi and um, Kitano himself and uh, Susumu Terajima. Okay, is there anything else that we you feel we should 
discuss. Oh, there's one another thing that I wanted to. There was another thing that I wanted to bring up about Horibe, and this maybe goes to show that the events that happen on the film should not be taken quite literally. That maybe they are symbols of that they represent something. Like like I said, his wife is silent and speaks only one line in the film, and maybe that should not be taken literally as a female character, but she should be taken as a symbol for something. And I think the same thing with Horibe because I don't know, but I have this impression that you know, an injured cop in Japan would have a decent disability benefit that he would get, that he wouldn't be, you know, so so in such a bad shape that that he would need someone to rob a bank to buy him painting supplies. Or am I, am I, would I be wrong about that? No, I did question that. Like, he's living in rented accommodation and, like, he can't afford art supplies. It's like, doesn't he get a pension? Like, can't that cover something yeah i mean i'm not saying he would be rich but it seems like he would get a decent pension and disability disability insurance or whatever that thing is for his injury although again like i said i don't think that these are meant to be taken literally i think there's a symbol it could also be that it's not that he couldn't afford to buy painting supplies just he didn't have the motivation and and kitano did it as a uh just to to to, push him into it. To push him into it, yeah. I mean, although he does get money in the end, presumably. Is that what you thought there was in the boxes that they got in the end? So both the widow and the Horibe, do you think is that what they get in the end with those boxes that we never see what's inside? I believe so, yeah. So yeah, so there's definitely an economic element to it, which I, again, it, it's, it's, I think if you take it literally, it's definitely, it will definitely lead you to some questions that might not be entirely too realistic. But I think I don't think they're meant to be taken legally. I think it's meant to, to kind of side with your point of hope a little bit. I think they're meant to be, you know, packages of hope, like 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 the the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. We never see what's inside of it because it's what it represents is a lot more important than anything that it could be inside. I think the boxes in uh, in um, in Hanabi are the same thing. They're not. You're not supposed to. It doesn't matter what's inside if it's money. Although we can safely make the assumption that it is money. You're meant to believe that you know it's it's something to keep them going. Well, yeah, like don't question it too much because the police will want to know where that money will come from, where that money has come from. Exactly, and I I feel like you know they they could add two and two together and figure out that he did rob the bank. Well, that's how uh, Susumu Terajima's character, the other detective, figures out what's going on, and he shows some discretion at the end by Nishi that time with uh, his wife. Yeah. I think that bank robbery scene is noteworthy because everybody that I talk to that is not that familiar with Japanese cinema but has seen this film, that's kind of the most, what they remember mostly because it's such an iconic, you know, and such an original idea of how he just so, you know, completely in line with his stoic and, and you know, a, few, a man of few words, that's exactly how he would rob a bank. Yeah, it just completely undercuts the sort of, like, type of thing you would expect. It's not heat. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. He just goes in, and you know, nobody, everybody in the bed thinks he's just someone making a regular deposit, except you know the 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 teller that is directly in front of him, and the one woman on the side that seems terrified that he can tell his gun, and then he just kind of like walks out. Yeah, everybody's so focused on their own selves, which is kind of like what Haribe says. Like in a relationship, everybody's so selfishly focused on themselves, and then you get Nishi doing these selfless acts to help out the other people in his life. Oh, just to go go on a tangent, like the uh, briefcase in Pulp Fiction has a lock and the combination is 666. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I remember that. <laughs> okay. You can cut that bit out. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, 
everything goes in. <laughs> okay. No mercy. Um, <laughs> what is that? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like those things are. If you're if you're tend to see the movie as as a more nihilistic piece you could argue like i would that those packages that they get in themselves don't necessarily do much to give the characters life meaning but you could also argue like you do that they do and that's that's really the best that's really all one can hope for they've got more hope than other characters in kitano's other works at least they they're still alive and they've got some economic mobility yeah uh, yeah, and and the, the other thing that kind of slightly related is how the other couple, what's his name, the one that appears in a lot of Kitano films, uh, the Susumu Terajima Nakam, yeah, Nakamura, yeah, I think is his name. Yeah, Nakamura. Um, and he, you know, there's a point, and again, there's this this part where it's a little bit hard to grasp because how the film plays at the time in the beginning, but how he's about to go on a date at some point, and then after that's where we find out that he's been injured, although we won't see his injury. Until later, says, "Well, she visited me at the hospital, so I think I'm going to marry her." And there's nothing, nothing made of that. It's almost said in passing. But the next time that we see him, when he's, he's when Nishi has disappeared and he's looking for Nishi, although I don't think at that point he's he knows that Nishi has committed any crimes. I think he's just looking for them because he's disappeared. He, we see him. He's, he has a ring on his finger. Mm. So, so presumably, presumably, he's gone through the marriage, and he's like. He and the other cop who barely says anything are like the next in line mm. to become Nishi and Horibe. So there's almost this hint that the cycle will repeat and he becomes more, again, he doesn't, he doesn't, so this is kind of subtle because he doesn't, it, it's not like he's a big part of the film, but I feel like he becomes more and more like Itano. Like he's a shy young man at the beginning of the film that is about to get married, but in the end he's kind of takes the same sort of almost the same stance, the same uh, posture, the same attitude, where there's this hint that there's going to be, that he's going to be the next in this cycle of life, whether for better or for worse, that is just taking over and his partner over Horibe, or at least that's something that we can make an assumption for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with that one. It's like the, the junior-senior relationship. The cycle keeps continuing. And if you watch um, Violent Cop, you can see um, like that as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is the funniest moment in such a, a tragic film? Okay, I, I, I don't... I think his other Sonatine and, and uh, Kikujiro have funnier moments than uh, Hanabi, but let me think. The opening scene is pretty funny where he's forcing those uh, two thugs to clean his car. Mm. Um, the kite moment at the end is also kind of funny. What else? What? Why don't you answer the question? I can't, I can't think of it any other right now. I think, like again, like the the way this is structured is like you've got set up, and then somewhere down the line, like a couple of scenes later, pay off, and you're aware that he's got a taxi that's been stolen, and like he's testing out the opening the back door, and then you've got this person's been involved in a hit and run, and uh, oh yeah, 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 like yeah, he runs yeah. up to the car, and he's like, you're a waste of public money, <laughs> and then Kitano opens the back door and then drives off after knocking him over. Yeah. And the same, the, the other, the other character who comes back, I, I think it's the same character maybe that comes back to the giant yard and he, he asks, how much is this? And mm. she's the girl that worked there says, it's just junk. But then the other guy comes in and he, he doesn't, he's not looking at him because he has his back turned and he said, it's just junk. And then he kind of lifts him by the collar and says, what did you call this? What did you, what are you, what are you calling junk or something like that? Yeah. 
Yeah, like if you like, a lot of these actors are part of um, Takeshi Kitano's like uh, stable of um, uh, go-to thespians, and so it's really yeah. great to see them uh, come back again. Like Susumu Terajima and um, Renosugi are probably the most recognizable, but that junkyard owner is Tetsu Watanabe, and his sort of anti-authoritarian <laughs> attitude is funny. Yeah. There was oh, yeah when he says uh, what do you want what do you want to do I'm just gonna rob a bank and you know it's it's hard to tell whether he takes him seriously or he just laughs but then he's reading the newspaper and he says oh he did rob <laughs> yeah. a bank or something like I that I should have charged him more <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah uh, so yeah there there are, there are a few funny moments although I'd say I think Sonatine is has more funny moments especially when they're all at the beach mm. and they're playing all those games mm, the, the sumo scene is probably the most famous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know the, the geisha dancing and all that. There, 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 there are a few moments there that are quite funny. And Kikujiro, of course, is more is a more lighthearted film, so there's more even mm. there. Picture postcard aspects of Japan, um, like it gives like, uh, perhaps this is for the international audience, but it gives you like all the touristic uh, side of the country where you, you get Japan in the snow in the summer, so forth. You got downtown Tokyo and um, the temple in Kamakura. Yeah, they, they go to Mount Fuji, right? Yeah, you've got a picture, of, uh, a scene where the couple visit Mount Fuji and the hot springs in Niigata. Uh, yeah, yeah. When they when they do a 4K release of the film, you can just freeze frame a bunch of a bunch of frames in the film and just print them out. Absolutely, yeah. It's like picture postcard Japan. Yeah, yeah. Though they like they, they there's even like a very like stereotypical shot of Mount Fuji that anybody in the world would recognize. Yeah, I think right before the the. Kitano and his wife are about to take their trip. I, yeah, this is things that ordinary couples do, and you can imagine that they've been putting it off forever because of his work, and they had a child, and like now is the time that like they've got so little time left. Yeah, and it, and I think that's part of his guilt as well. Yeah, that's you know not not just guilt about his his partners, and I think I think you mentioned this, but it's about you know being not being you know the husband that he thought he his wife deserved. So just to go over a bit of the the sort of the the reputation and the legacy that this film has, uh, it won the Golden Lion that year in um, in Venice, and I, I I don't I don't have them written down, but it looks like out of all the other films that competed, there wasn't that much that is kind of memorable today. So it looks like maybe it didn't have as much competition, or at least maybe by comparison, none of the films are as well known as as this as this film was. Uh, it was it was you know a big nomina- it received a lot of nomination in that year's uh, Japanese Academy Award, so the Japanese equivalent of the Oscars. But it only won for Joe best score for Joe Hisaishi. It was nominated for best picture, best director, best actor, etc. But um, it didn't win it didn't win any of those. And the winner that year was a movie called Begging for Love, and the Japanese title is I O Kuhito uh, by Hideyuki Hirayama whom I'm not sure I've seen any films. I don't know if you have. No, I, I don't think I've seen any of his films either. So it's interesting that this film is so, you know, I think it speaks to what you said, that he was maybe not taking us seriously at the time. And because it's, I find it strange that is, I mean, again, maybe it's just my hind, my ability to see in hindsight because it's such a fantastic film uh, that, you know, it could not have won, but I guess it didn't. I By, by the sounds of it, Begging for Love is like a, a bit of a, a tearjerker, a crowd pleaser. So, like, maybe like it's more commercially palatable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I think I mean I don't know. I like I, I think the the Japanese Academy Awards are somewhat of a mixed bag. Like sometimes you have the the crowd pleasers that 
win, but sometimes you do have these more obscure art films that win. Uh, depends on on the year, I suppose. Yeah, like when you look at uh, like Cahiers du Cinema named it as number one in their annual top ten films of the year. Yeah, and you had the European Film Awards crowning it best international film, and um, at the Cinema uh, Jumper Awards, which uh, I think has more like uh, cachet, cultural cachet, it won best film and reader's choice awards. Does it? That's that's a good point because I've I've kind of considered. I mean, you 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 would know more of this about me, but I I kind of always look to the Japanese Academy Award. So you're saying the Cinema Jumpo is more prestigious in Japan? I get the sense that it's one that cineasts take more seriously, whereas like the Japanese Academy is like kind of like. I suppose, akin to the Academy Awards. Okay, I mean, the Academy Awards in America are the top awards, even though, I mean, some people don't take them as seriously, but they are, you know, the sort of the, the top award that an American film can win. So that's that's kind of, in the sense, what I took him. But Kinema Jumpa ah, is okay. older. They, they're, you know, they've been around a lot. I think the Academy, the Japanese Academy started giving awards in the 70s, 78 or mm. something like that. So def- they're definitely a lot more recent, whereas Kinema Jumpo is older so it would make sense but i I don't know why i just didn't uh, i always look at that as opposed to the the other one there are all sorts of different awards in japan there's like some of them are run by film directors who will like put their own films in so it's like an aspect of nepotism but i get the sense that kinema jumpo is like uh, taken very seriously by the cineasts okay that's and, and what award did it win there uh best film and reader's choice award okay that's that's great. Which is not to downplay the importance of the Japanese Academy. Sure, sure, sure. Um, all right. So we haven't done this in a while, but how many stars would you give this film, and how do you rank it among other Kitano films? I really, I've got uh, a friend named Paul, and so whenever we talk about Kitano, we usually agree that the films he doesn't star in are the best. So, like a scene at the sea and Kids Return. I find myself returning to Kids Return and Hanabi quite often. I would say it's top three, four. It would be, I think it would be a great introduction to his work. I would give it four, four and a half, five stars. Uh, It's a great introduction to his work. It's kind of like the um, apotheosis of all everything he's like, uh, like his techniques, his aesthetic and um, all the things he's interested in and he keeps going back to um i don't know maybe kids return would be my number one and hanabi would be number two it's difficult all right yeah so i i have not seen kids return so i have to watch that and maybe he would replace it uh i mean i would give hanabi five out of five i mean it's a fantastic film it's almost a masterpiece however it is my second kitano favorite film number one would be sonatine i just have there's just something special about that film that really appeals to me it could be that it is uh, somewhat of a remake of an old Fukasaku film. Not exactly a remake, but it is loosely inspired by it. Mm. Uh, so, so maybe that's why I'm not, I'm not sure, but there is, I, I would put Sonatai number one and then Hanabi number two, and then I would probably put Kikojiro number three. I just, I, people, I've, I've read mixed feelings about that. Some people love it, some other people think it's not as good as his top films, but I don't know, it's just, it, I, I like the lightheartedness of it. But you know what, I would give Hanabi five out of five as well. Okay. All right. All right. So, oh, good, because otherwise, B. Takeshi would would come and beat you. <laughs> He'd get me with one punch. Yes, would show up at your house and beat the door down. Right. His his army of comedians would come get me. Which kind of like sounds like you should be the plot of that movie that he did, Ryuzu and the Seven Henchmen, which I haven't seen. 
he, because well, he it, goes, I, after, <laughs> goes after amateur film critic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. It, I think that's what that film is about. I think it's like this old retired thieves or yakuza do a mission together. I think I don't know someone. I don't want to. I don't want to because I haven't seen. I remember I read. I read the synopsis when it came out. So this was, I think, maybe 2016 or something. Mm. And uh, I read a, rev- a couple of reviews about it and it seemed to do very poorly. At least w- from Western critics, seems to seem to have been received poorly. And I think that's what it was about. Although. Who knows? But it might be. It would have been funnier if it was, you know, a bunch of retired, seven retired filmmakers going after amateur film critics. <laughs> I, I, yeah, there's there's a film to be made. We've got to do it, John. Yes, or we can just pitch it to him, and he he'd probably go for it with how his sense of humor is. Absolutely, I would pay to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. I would gladly give my ten dollars. Okay. So, uh, thank you, Jason. That was our discussion for uh, Takeshi Kitano's 1997 uh, Golden Lion winner, Hana B, aka Fireworks. Next episode, we'll be talking, we'll be going back a couple of years and talking about Stephen Chow's, uh, directed by Jeffrey Lau, 1995 film, Out of the Dark, which uh, will be uh, probably our, our only comedy or our first comedy in, in a while. So, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but until then, we we both hope you have a good time. You watch uh, you watch good cinema, and uh, see you in a couple of weeks.